you actually can just remain standing because we're going to jump right into our passage this morning. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4, we're looking at Genesis chapter 4 as we continue our slow trek through the book of Genesis. This is our 11th Sunday in the book of Genesis. We are slowly making our way through it. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 4. We're looking at verses 17 through 26. Genesis 4, 17 through 26. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing now to the word of our God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit coming to us through the pen of Moses. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for, she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless and anoint the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit. And pray that you would awaken our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to 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 see Christ, to hear Christ's voice, and to, to experience His grace and nearness in our hearts as we hear the truth of Your Word preached. Empower me to, to be truthful and accurate and to be true to You and Your Word. And allow us all to walk away from here this morning empowered to serve You in the strength of Your Spirit in our city and in our culture and in our generation for the sake and glory of Your name. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us, we were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. 
You might recognize those as the opening words of Dickens' famous historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities, as he, he sought to describe life before and during the French Revolution. But you know, someone living in the time of our text this morning might have been tempted to say it of their own time as well. In our text this morning, we, what we find before us is in some ways the best of times and in some ways the worst of times, at least up until that point. In it, we find the display of God's common grace and even His special grace among some, all being set against the backdrop of, of ghastly depravity. We see grim depictions of human heinousness, as well as the revelation of God's preserving and promising grace. We see the inevitability of human progress and human regress, as well as some of humanity return to the God who made them. In some ways, some might say it was the best of times, and in other ways, others might say it was, it was the worst of times, and in some ways, they might all be right. And that's not the only relation, though, to Dickens' Tale of Two Cities we find in our passage this morning. What we find here also, what we find what we very well might call a tale of two cities. You know, it was St. Augustine who, who, in one of his most famous books, told us that the entire Bible and really all of human history is actually very much a tale of two cities. He said that simultaneously in this world, existing alongside each other, we find the city of man and the city of God. We find the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. We find the civilization of man and the civilization of God. We find right here in our world right now, citizens of this world and citizens of heaven, or if we were to use the language of, of Genesis 3.15 this morning, you find the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman all living alongside each other right here in this world and in our passage. And that Genesis 3.15 promise is the drama we find unfolding in our passage here. We see portrayed here these two cities, these two civilizations, these two offsprings right before our very eyes, and in a way that is worldview shaping for us, and in a way that gives us insight as to how we might live in our world today as we continue to set our hopes on the world to come. So this morning, I want to walk us through our passage here, and as we do so, I want us to see here the rise of humanity, the regress of humanity, and the return of humanity. First, though, we see the rise of humanity. And our passage kicks off here telling us that Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And now, right off the bat, we might have a lot of questions, right? Like, who, who is this? Who, who is Cain's wife, for one? Also, who would marry the likes of Cain after we've already seen what we've seen about him? And you've got to wonder, with Cain being the way he is, how is their family going to turn out? And our passage this morning doesn't necessarily answer all of the questions we might have, but it does answer that last question. How does, how does Cain's family, how is this family going to turn out? And the answer is, in some ways, better than you might expect. Because part of what we see in our passage here is this, this encouraging display of the cultural mandate still continuing, Right? you remember with me, all the way back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, what we saw there before the fall, before humanity's descent into depravity and the curse and the created order, we saw God commission humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the, 
the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we saw there that God had created humanity in his own image. And he did that so that we might be like him and so that we might do what he did there in the beginning. And what did he do in the beginning? He formed and filled the earth. He made all things with creativity and beauty and excellence and then filled it with life and abundance and multiplication. And just so, he created us and told us in essence, be like me and do what I do. And so we were created to start families and raise children and work jobs and create art and cultivate land and plant gardens and invent and build useful things and exercise all of these God-given gifts that he has given us in order to fill and cultivate and further beautify the earth. And that's exactly what we see Cain's family doing here in our passage. We see them procreating. Look there, and, and, and really all through 17 through 22, and Cain and his wife have Enoch. And then down the line, you see Irad and Mahujael and Methushael and Lamech. And you see Jabal and Jubal and Tubal, Cain and Naamah. And in all of this, fallen humanity continues to still experience the grace of family and the blessing of children. By God's grace, fallen humanity still gets to participate in God's wonderful purposes in the world and receive his good gifts. We see this not only in that this family exists, but in what they go on to accomplish. Look at verse 17 there. You see that they're a family who builds a city. Don't think of a city like New York or Columbus or even like Dayton. You know, a city at that time would have been a place where, you know, just a few people dwelled, and yet they would have kind of gathered together, built some buildings, some homes, probably some walls, and they would have lived together in this secure, shared society, even if there's just a few of them, like in a family. And of course, you know, in some ways, you know, uh, some people have noted that in Genesis, cities are portrayed as, uh, they're portrayed in something of a negative light throughout the book of Genesis. We would do well here, even from the get-go, to remember that cities are not bad in and of themselves. And in many ways, cities are typically hubs of innovation and creativity. And that's the case here. Look at the accomplishments of Lamech's sons. Look at uh, the, uh, Jabal in verse 20. He's said to be the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. He was, he was the father. You know, it's like when we call Hippocrates the father of modern medicine. Or Galileo, the, the father of modern science. What are we saying? We're saying that those men, in many ways, pioneered what we know of today as medicine and science. Well, apparently, Jabal was one who pioneered, you know, the business of ranching and farming in this way. And that's a significant development for humanity and our endeavor to, to have dominion over this world and over animal life. That's, that's a significant gift to humanity. Next time you sink your teeth into a delicious smoked brisket, realize you have Jabal, humanly speaking, to thank for that. He pioneered that whole business. Then not only in business and ranching and farming, also see significant development in music and the arts. Look at verse 21. Jubal is said to be the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. So he pioneered in this area of, of music and in these particular instruments. So the lyre was like this, uh, this stringed instrument, almost like a mini harp of sorts. The pipe would have been a, a wind instrument. It 
may have been made from metal, as we'll see in the next brother, or perhaps it would have been made from an animal horn, but either way, Jubal was a man, he was a pioneer of music in the arts. You know, I've always said there'd be no Taylor Swift if there was not first Jubal, right? Yeah, he's, he's, he really paved the way for her, you could say. You can thank him for that. But then not only in you know, agriculture and the arts, look also at verse 22 where we see that Tubal Cain was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So Tubal Cain was a, a, a man of innovation and ingenuity. He was an inventor and he was a, a blacksmith of sorts. So just, just imagine here, he very well could have made the forks and the knives with which you eat the brisket that Jabal raised, as well as the pipes that Jubal and his descendants played. This is all very impressive, isn't it? And Kenneth Phillips says of this family here, what a, what a festival they could offer to the city of Cain with roast meat, crafted silverware, and musical accompaniment. If Lamech started a university, his own family would have chaired the colleges of business, arts, and science. They were an impressive and innovative and creative bunch, even all the while belonging to the city of man and to the offspring of the serpent. Of course, we're reminded in all of this, the doctrine of God's common grace, aren't we? Common grace is, is, is the doctrine that tells us that while not all of humanity receives God's special saving grace, even those not redeemed by Christ still live on the receiving end of God's good, albeit non-redemptive, gifts. And Jesus tells us of, of God's common grace in Matthew 5.45 when he says that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, God is kind even to those who hate and deny him and rebel against him. He continues to shower down his, his good, albeit non-saving gifts on all of humanity, even on those who hate him. And just so, he sends down giftedness and talent and creativity and brilliant intellect on the likes of Cain and his non-believing family. And God still does this today. He sends blessings to and through those who don't know him. In the city of man, that is, in, 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 in this city and culture and world as a whole, don't we all get to experience God's good blessings in this way? And things like government and business and science and education and art and food and family life and all the rest of it, don't we all, both as citizens of the city of man and citizens of the city of God, get to contribute and receive and enjoy these kinds of good gifts? And all because God has made humanity in his image and endows us all with the ability to contribute good things even while not all of us are redeemed in and through Christ. John Calvin spoke to this in his day as he encouraged readers of, of his institutes to accept and enjoy the gifts of the city of man. He says in the institutes that the human mind, however much fallen, perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable, admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, he says, we will be careful, as we would avoid offering insult to him, not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears. 
If the Lord has been pleased to assist us by the work and ministry of the ungodly in physics, dialectics, mathematics, and other similar sciences, let us avail ourselves of it. In other words, he's saying that our neighbors don't need to be Christians for us to benefit and learn from the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given them. Even as citizens of the city of God, God has placed us here to dwell in the city of man. And while here, we've been placed here to give and receive, to bless our earthly city and benefit our earthly city as well as receive benefit from it. We're to appreciate God's goodness displayed here, even in the city of man, as we participate in its life and culture and existence. And I highlight this just for a moment here, because we obviously live in a culture right now that, that, that is been said to be increasingly headed in a, 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 an increasingly secular and pagan direction, right? And the solution for some Christians has been recently to increasingly advocate for retreating from the culture and city of man, withdrawing from the culture and city of man, not contributing to and participating in its life, not receiving some of its common grace gifts, but essentially separating and siloing ourselves off from the city of man. That's not God's intention for his people. If we did that, we would in many ways cease to contribute to and participate in the cultural mandate that God has given us, and we would fail to receive some of God's common grace gifts that He intends to bless us with in the city of man. No, God intends to bring blessing to and through all humanity as the cultural mandate continues among all of humanity. We see this here in the rise of humanity. And yet on the other hand, As we often see in human history, even while humanity continually rises, we also see it regress. As one theologian has said, a development of culture and technology does not signal a corresponding development in morality and civility. And that's certainly true of the city of man and the city of Cain here. By God's common grace, of course, there's innovation and creativity and astounding cultural development. And yet there's also depravity and pervasive wickedness. We see this first here in Cain's self-adulation. And that while a, a city is being built in verse 17, we also see a man-centered attitude in its naming. He called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. We'll go on to see in Genesis the godly name places and landmarks with a goal to honor God in the naming. You might think of, of Jacob naming uh, the, the, the place where he had the dream of the, the latter Bethel or house of God. We'll also see just a few chapters from now the city of Babel being built in order that the ungodly might make a name for themselves. Well, just so here, Cain is not seeking to honor God in the naming of the city and in the building of the city. He's seeking to make a name for his family and their accomplishments. There's there's a pride and self-adulation driving the building and formation of this city. It has not been built to honor God, but to applaud man. Then we not only see self-adulation here, we see sexual sin. At least sexual sin, perhaps we should even say sexual subjugation. See, in verse 19, Lamech seek to redefine marriage, don't we? It's only four chapters into the Bible before humanity starts trying to redefine marriage here. And thus we we see here the, the Bible's first instance of polygamy. Lamech marries two women. He has two wives. And of course, you know, 
Later in the Bible, we'll, we'll see even some of God's people participate in polygamous practices, but even still, polygamy is never celebrated in the Bible. It's never commended. In fact, it's continually portrayed as damaging and devastating to family life. And that's because it's a departure from God's good design for marriage that we saw in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, marriage is portrayed as this beautiful and intimate and flourishing one flesh union between one man and one woman who love and desire and partner with one another. But here we find a, a, a brutal man collecting wives like trophies. And in fact, with Lamech's address to his wives in verses 23 and 24, where he brags about violently taking the life of another, you know, it sounds like to me that he's speaking to them in something of a threatening manner, which makes you wonder whether Lamech's marriages were sealed with or without the consent of Ada and Zillah in the first place. That maybe they've been forced and subjugated into marrying this atrocious man, that they're actually more slaves than they are wives. Either way, it's all a grim and ghastly contrast from the one flesh union we see in Genesis 2. It's all very different from God's good design for sex and marriage and the joy these gifts offer. And of course, we see not only self-adulation and sexual exploitation, but utter savagery. In verses 23 and 24, Lamech is a savage, brutal man. He says to his wives, in a bit of what's actually skillful Hebrew poetry, reminding us of the development of the arts here, but he says such brutal things. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Of course, the, the first bit of human poetry we see in the Bible is in Genesis 2, where we see Adam exult in his wife, saying, this at last, of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But this is quite different than that, isn't it? Lamech doesn't exult in his bride here. He exults in himself. He's boasting of his brutality. He's self-aggrandizing in his savagery. He brags of killing a young man, possibly a child, for merely wounding him. And while God put a mark of protection on Cain and pronounced sevenfold vengeance on the, any who might harm him, Lamech boasts asserting his lack of need for God's protecting and preserving grace. No, Lamech is a powerful man. He's a violent man, more powerful and violent than Cain. And he he can take care of himself, thank you very much. And so if anyone should wound him, he will kill. If anyone looks at him sideways, they're headed to the hospital. If anyone does him wrong, it's coming back to them by the hand of Lamech, 77-fold. It's all very dark and dire, all because of the depths to which human depravity is sinking. Isn't this just the way it always is? More or less, the, 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 the city of man, even while God's common grace resides, even while the city of man can be marked by innovation and creativity and common grace blessings, it's also marked by terrible developments due to human depravity and self-adulation and sexual sin and savage violence. It's, it's often simultaneously filled with progress worthy of celebration and regress worthy of lament. And often the, 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 the progress and regress, regress of humanity is far more intimately connected than ever even anticipated. 
Makes me think of how in the 20th century, there's a century in which humanity celebrated the most progress in innovation and invention and creativity and culture and really all of human history. It was a century. It was a century that gave us antibiotics, the airplane, the automobile, air conditioning. It gave us the radio, television, nuclear power, the computer, the internet. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about how different our world is and in some ways how it's so much better as a result of God's common grace blessing and the cultural mandate continuing in astounding measure in the 20th century. And yet at the same time, the 20th century is on record as being the bloodiest, most violent, most murderous century in all of human history. It gave us countless wars, including two world wars. In the end, over 187 million lives were taken as a result of such savagery. As of now, it seems like the 21st century is not on track to look much better. Because while humanity rises, it's also utterly fallen. While humanity makes headway in business and the arts and the sciences, humanity always heads in the wrong direction because of human sin. We make and create beautiful things, and we ruin everything. You know, Tubal Cain might have made the pipes with which his brother made beautiful music and the forks with which to eat the brisket of Jabal, but he also might have made the dagger with which his father slayed his victim. It makes me think of the words, these words I came across this past week, the words of a man from our very own city. The Wright brothers were, of course, Bicycle mechanics located right here in Dayton, Ohio, but their, their claim to fame, of course, was, as you know, the invention of the airplane, making Ohio the birthplace of aviation, which we boast in proudly here. They began their work to invent and build a, a, a flying machine in the year 1899, and just four years later, they took the first flight over the land of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, an astounding human achievement. And yet it wasn't much later that their invention would be flown over the lands of Europe, now armed with machine guns to cut down the lives of warring soldiers. Orville Wright would later lament, saying, We dared to hope that we had invented something that would bring lasting peace to the earth, but we were wrong. Of course, planes have been used since then in ways that are life-giving and good. It's enabled loved ones who live on different points of the globe to see one another more regularly. It's allowed missionaries to have access to peoples and places previous generations of Christians could only dream of. It's enabled the flourishing of, of business and economic progress in and, and, and ways scarcely ever imagined, and yet the airplane has been used to drop bombs. It's been flown into buildings and terrorist attacks. It's aided human trafficking in ways also scarcely ever imagined. Humanity rises, humanity regresses, humanity is glorious, humanity is utterly fallen. So what are we to do with this as Christians? Well, we already saw that, that, that because of God's common grace and our calling and the cultural mandate, we're not called to withdraw and retreat from the city of man. And yet at the same time, we need to remember that the city of man is not our home. 
This world, this country, this city, this culture, we don't ultimately belong to it. We belong to another kingdom, another culture, another city. We belong to the God of heaven and, and his kingdom and the new Jerusalem. We are what the Apostle Peter calls us in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, exiles. We're exiles, or, or, or some would rather translate that word not as exiles, but as resident aliens. We take up residence here, but it's not our true and ultimate home. That word is getting at this reality that we as Christians right now are those who live in a home that is not our actual home. We're living in a city, in a society, in a civilization we ultimately don't belong to. This country is not our ultimate country. Our country is heaven. The city of Dayton, we, we love this place. I love this place. But it's not ultimately our city. Our city is ultimately the new Jerusalem. And so even while we live in and benefit from the city of man, as we saw in our last point, we're also encouraged here to live in the city of man as a distinct and holy people. You know, it's like in Jeremiah 29. When God's people were being sent into exile in the city of Babylon. And while they're there, they, they very well might have had this inclination to live as a, a ghetto of God's people, sectioning and separating and siloing themselves off from the life of the city, not participating in it, not enjoying life in the city, not appreciating God's gifts from citizens of the city. And God actually commands them to do quite the opposite, doesn't he? He tells them to settle there, to build homes to plant gardens, to marry off their children. And most surprisingly, he tells them, Jeremiah 29, 7, to seek the welfare of the city and to pray to the Lord on its behalf. You see, part of the Bible's vision for us as exiles means seeking the peace and prosperity of our earthly city and culture, which means that we participate in the life of our city and culture, working in our jobs to give the talents and, God, and gifts God has given us. It means receiving the good gifts and and, and that our earthly city and culture has to offer. It means volunteering and voting and serving where there's need and savoring where there's common grace blessing. It means praying to God on behalf of the flourishing of our city and state and nation and praying for the governing authorities of the same and all of that. And yet all the while we're to do so, not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the new Jerusalem. We're to do so not as the serpent offspring, but distinctly as the offspring of the woman. We are, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 14, we read it earlier, to live as a city on a hill. We're to live as a distinct city, even while we live in this earthly city. We're to be a people of distinct and peculiar character as we dwell in the city of man. You know, as the people of God moved into Babylon and Jeremiah 29 and lived as exiles in that city. They still lived by the Mosaic Code. They still dwelt there as a peculiar people. And just so, we're to live in our city and culture as a distinct and peculiar and holy and different kind of people. Not set apart by living by the Mosaic Code any longer, but set apart by the transformation of our character and the holiness of our conduct. Well, the city of man is filled with self-adulation and aggrandizement and competition in the workplace. We're to be a people of humility who give glory to God and put others before ourselves. Well, the city of man is filled with sexual sin and immorality. We're to be set apart by our purity and self-control and by the way we honor the image of God and our fellow creatures, not objectifying others as objects of sexual lust and domination. 
Well, the city of man is filled with savagery and brutality and violence. We're to be set aside by our gentleness and patience and long-suffering. While our world is marked by Lamech's 77-fold vengeance, we're to be a people marked by Christ's 77-fold forgiveness. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our unbelieving families ought to see in us a people who are distinct from the city of man even while we live among them. All because while humanity rises and regresses, we are a different humanity. We are the humanity that has been returned to the God who made us. Which brings us lastly to the return of humanity. Verses 25 and 26 show us a, a, a genealogy very different from the genealogy of Cain. Cain's genealogy shows us the, the line and offspring of the serpent, spoken of in Genesis 3.15. Now we come to the line and offspring of the woman, spoken of in the same. Verse 25 tells us that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For, she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Of course, as we've kind of seen this pattern so far, Seth's name sounds like the Hebrew word for appointed. The most important thing to note here would be Eve's use of that word offspring there, calling Seth another offspring instead of Abel. You see, by faith here, Eve holds on to the promise of God that that while Cain belongs to the offspring of the serpent and Abel, the offspring of the woman, has been slain, that from her would still come the promised offspring that belongs to the people and covenant of God. That while Abel, the promised offspring, was cut off and slain in Genesis 4.8, the line of the promised offspring has been resurrected here in Genesis 4.25 in Seth. God keeps his promises. There is hope for humanity. Here is the return of the promised offspring. Then the genealogy keeps going in verse 26 where Moses writes that to Seth also was born a son and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, it seems here that, that, the, that the worship of the Lord had declined ever since Abel was martyred. But now in the, in the line of Seth, Humanity is returning to the living God. Humanity is there confessing His holy name, worshiping Him again, calling upon Him in prayer. The name they're seeking to exalt in and establish is not their own, right? Unlike Cain and Enoch and Lamech, the name they're seeking to extol is that of the living God. While Lamech sings a song to his own name, this new humanity who has returned to God sings the name of the living God. St. Augustine put it so succinctly. The earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. That is the distinguishing difference between the city of man and the city of God, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And yet at the same time, if we're honest here, we can look at all this darkness and depravity beginning to fill God's good world here in Genesis 4. And then look at this, this few people who are starting to call upon the name of the Lord here and just think, well, big whoop, right? Yeah, small family, 
is beginning to worship and seek the Lord, and that's great, and all a little mustard seed of, of a God-honoring family is being planted here, but what about all this, this savagery and sexual subjugation and self-aggrandizement? What's going to be done about that? What difference is this going to make in the face of such rampant sin and depravity? We should not forget here that in God's promise of the offspring of the woman, one would eventually come to redeem humanity and return us back to God and one day renew all things. You see, because this little mustard seed of a family being planted here, what's being planted is the eventual redemption and renewal of all things. You know, maybe some of us here this morning have felt hopeless in the face of humanity's continual rise and regress throughout history and in our present time. Maybe we've, we've looked at all of the human progress over this last century leading up until 2024, and we felt the vanity of it all because of this, this continual sting of humanity's fallenness and sin and pain. And maybe some of us are feeling frustrated or disillusioned, having bought into the promise of human progress only to get burned again and again because of humanity's darkness. And we're left wondering, is there any hope for humanity? Is there any hope for us? Well, in Luke 3, we come to another genealogy. And in this genealogy, we see some familiar names. We see names like Adam and Seth and Enosh. And we see that this family line will eventually lead us to the name of Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves. Why is that important? Why, why does Luke give us a genealogy leading from these names all the way up to the name of Jesus? Well, because Luke wants us to see that this Jesus is ultimately the appointed offspring. He is the offspring promised in Genesis 3.15 through whom God will crush the head of the serpent and bring humanity back to himself. And thus he is the Lord saves. So just like the sons of Eve, Jesus would be born of a woman and he would come to live in the city of man and dwell here as a resident alien. Because in addition to being the son of man, he actually comes from another city. He's actually the son of the living God come down from heaven for us. And nonetheless, as such, he would live in the city of man and participate in the city of man. He would, he would go on to work as a carpenter and he would create and form and shape beautiful things using the gifts that God has given humanity and given to him to beautify God's good world by the work of his hands, contributing to the task of the cultural mandate. And he would also receive the city of man's good gifts. He would eat food and wear clothes made by the hands of others. He would go to parties and attend festivals. He would buy and exchange goods. He would live in homes and dwell in cities and towns, and he would reside and participate fully in the city of man. And yet all the while, unlike any other human in history, he would do so utterly perfectly distinct from us, living as perfect humanity amongst a very profane humanity. Most shockingly, though, he himself would be slain and cut off. In fact, rather ironically, in one of the most progressive and impressive empires in human history, 
They would also master the art of torturing and killing human beings. And one of the most innovative empires in all of human history, they came up with the most innovative way to torture and kill people in the act of crucifixion. And just so in a place that shows how high humanity can rise and using an instrument that shows how low humanity can regress, Jesus was hanged on a human cross being slain and cut off by the offspring of the serpent and the citizens of the city of man. And yet, friends, while this was the worst of times, it was also the best of times. While this was the worst thing to ever happen in all of human history, it was also the best thing to happen in all of human history because while it shows us the depths of human depravity and the depths to which humanity would regress in killing its own creator, at the same time, The creator God was graciously at work through it. He planned and purposed this very event all to atone for our depravity, to forgive our wretched sin, and to return us to himself. Because in the cross of Jesus, he took upon himself the sin and judgment we deserve, securing our forgiveness that we so need. And yet, just as in our passage here this morning, God would not allow the offspring of the woman to be finally cut off. So Jesus of Nazareth, the offspring of the woman, was resurrected three days later, showing God's victory over the serpent and over the depravity of the city of man and over the death that plagues us all, over all things that stain and ruin and corrupt God's good creation. And right now, he has ascended and sits at the right hand of God where he resides over the city and kingdom of God, and over we who are its citizens. And as such, we await the promise that one day that city and our Savior will come down. And when he does, and when it does, the city of man on this earth will give way to the city of God. Part of the good news of that is all that is good and true and beautiful in this world will still continue on there. All that is evil and miserable and corrupt about this world will be finally and forever vanquished. It will be a world with music and food and buildings and culture and wine and multiple languages and art. It will also be a world without sin and suffering and sexual subjugation and savagery and self-aggrandizement. It will be a world without murder or brutality or violence at all. And unlike the cities of this world, that city will last and go on forever. And it will always be the best of times. And it will never, ever again be the worst of times because God will make all things new. Friends, you're all invited. All you must do is call upon the name of the Lord. Because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All you must do is come to him. Call upon his name. Return to him in trust and repentance and you will be made a citizen of the city of God and you will be saved and safe for his eternal city. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that by the the truth of your gospel, that we would be strengthened and formed and shaped this morning to live as citizens of your forever city, even in this now our temporal broken city. 
Help us as, as we do so to, to enjoy the, the common grace blessings of the city of man and to participate and contribute to it in ways that you have gifted us to do. Help us to always live as a distinct and holy and peculiar people in the midst of it, transformed by the power of your spirit to be those being increasingly conformed to the image of your beloved son, who is the king and governor of our eternal city. Strengthen us now as we come to the table. Shape us now as we come to the table for these very things. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.